Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn how to defend against disinformation through responsible thinking and pragmatic perspectives. My first guest is Dr. John Cook, and this episode originally aired in June of 2021. Cranky Uncle is the creation of scientist and cartoonist John Cook, who uses cartoons, humor, and critical thinking to expose the misleading techniques of science denial and build public resilience against misinformation. John Cook is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Climate Change Communication Research Hub at Monash University. He obtained his PhD at the University of Western Australia, studying the cognitive psychology of climate science denial. His research focuses on understanding and countering misinformation about climate change. And I think just misinformation too, John, if I'm correct. Yes, uh, because my work has increasingly focused on critical thinking, it's really started to be applicable to uh, every type of misinformation across all topics. So let's talk about everybody's cranky uncle, cranky parent, cranky sibling, crank the crank that is going along uh, right now around the world. What <laughs> impact does misinformation have on society? Well, misinformation... Um, and science denial unfortunately has a lot of really negative impacts. I've been studying it in climate change for the last decade. And in that, we see that misinformation and denial um, breed distrust of scientists. It, um, it, it obviously uh, can cause people to believe wrong things or just stop them believing accurate things. And uh, it can reduce people's support for climate action, which is something that we really desperately need um, these days. But, uh, but then it also has these other downstream effects. And we've seen that over the last year. When you breed an environment of distrusting scientists, then when you have issues like the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it becomes much easier for people to distrust medical scientific experts and then that can cause people to behave in dangerous ways like not wearing masks, not social distancing, ignoring expert advice. And then that endangers the health of the whole community. Well, the health of the world. You know, we have uh, so many people who refuse to be vaccinated because A, they don't believe in it or B, there's fear and misinformation about what the vaccine does and how it works and how it was created. Yes, uh, I mean the misinformation about COVID nineteen has has been pretty much nonstop from the beginning of the pandemic, and 
And it's taken on many flavors. Uh, at the beginning, there was downplaying of the virus. That became harder and harder as, as we saw the, the death toll rising and rising. Um, but then as the vaccinations became, started to become available, then we saw misinformation targeting vaccinations and, and, uh, um, having an impact on, um, people wanting to get vaccinated. And, and that's what we need in order to get herd immunity and, and stop the virus from spreading. So whether it's downplaying the virus or downplaying the solutions to the virus, all of these things have health uh, implications and, and those, those are real world consequences. But the issue is even deeper than that, isn't it? I mean, it's it, the the symptom is maybe the reluctance to embrace the science or the unwillingness to get a vaccine. But the issue really is about the information out there making people feel fearful and feel as though they are somehow going to lose their freedom or their liberties if they do this thing, whatever it is, whether it's the vaccine or vote a certain way in, in an election. Yeah, you really put your finger on it. Um, often science denial isn't really about the science at all. It's, it's actually about um, other belief systems or, or even just people's identities. And it can vary across topics. Uh, with climate change, the biggest driver of rejecting the science is political ideology. Um, people, as you say, people who don't like some of the solutions to climate change, rejecting that there's a problem in the first place that needs solving. But in other issues, such as evolution science, um, the ideology there is religious ideology. People don't like the, the um, well, people feel like their belief systems are threatened by the scientific evidence, so they reject the science. And this brings us to very dangerous territory, right? It, because it, it is the absence of common sense, at least in my view. I'm willing to say this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess um, this is a very dad thing to say, but common sense isn't that common <laughs> these days. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we, we should all be working from the same set of facts and, and we might propose different solutions to that. But if we're not inhabiting the same reality, then it's, it's becomes close to impossible to, to work together to, um, come up with compromise solutions. And so, um, trying to get everyone on, on at least the same page in terms of accepting evidence and, um, uh, a shared sense of reality, um, it, it's kind of essential to, to solving society's problems. And the answer or one one possible way to engage in in finding the answer and to inoculate ourselves from the infodemic is through creative play, right? Because play, being playful gets us to talk, gets us to communicate. And I think this is why Cranky Uncle has put such a smile on my face. And I'd love for you to tell our listeners a, about why you developed Cranky Uncle and then how it's been received in the world. So Cranky Uncle began with my psychological research into um, countering misinformation. And and the principle is is fairly straightforward and simple. It's basically when you explain the techniques used to mislead, uh, that inoculates people. Um, people don't like being misled. 
and and it works across the political spectrum because whether you're conservative or liberal, nobody likes being misled. It's like explaining the sleight of hand that a magician uses and then you can see through the trick. Uh, and so I set about trying to come up with engaging ways to explain misleading techniques of misinformation and happened upon games as a really powerful way of doing it. Uh, firstly, because as you say, it's engaging, it's fun, we use a lot of humour and cartoons in the game. But secondly, games have a, a particular, um, I guess, set of tools that, that are really useful in, in terms of misinformation and critical thinking because critical thinking is hard. <laughs> Our brains aren't really hardwired to to stop and reason through arguments. But what games let you do is practice critical thinking. And the game just has you practicing spotting misinformation over and over again. And because you accumulate points, you level up, you want to, you want to get further and further into the game, that uh, encourages you to practice and practice more. And the more you practice critical thinking, the quicker and better you get at it. So who can play this game? Is it is it catered towards youth? Is it catered towards everyone above a certain age? I mean, when you think about critical thinking and when it kicks in in the average human brain, if we were, we were to rely upon that, we'd be looking at a population in their mid to late 20s. Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I, I don't have a solid answer to that yet. We're actually <laughs> collecting data to try to find the answer to that. Because originally I designed the game thinking it would probably be college students playing it. And um, we, we released the game on iPhone and Android and on browsers to make it um, as free and accessible to everyone as possible. Uh, and, and certainly um, a lot of it's being played in a lot of college classes. But what surprised me was a lot of high school teachers signed up to start using the game in their classes and even middle school uh, teachers. So right now the game is being played in middle school, high school and college and we're collecting the data just to see how um, how the different grade levels go. My, my gut instinct is that um, it will certainly be effective at a high school level. That's what I'm hearing anecdotally from teachers and students. Uh, and, and possibly middle school. And, and even if it isn't, then um, what we'll probably do is create a, a, a younger version of the game with uh, simpler examples and simpler language, which would make it more accessible to middle school students. But, uh, you know, I think the seeds get planted. You know, even if a kid, a child of 12 or 13 or 10 even, even younger, um, may not grasp the full spectrum of being able to critically think or solve problems. I think by playing the game, right, you plant the seeds. Yeah, I, I think that, um, that, that introducing students to critical thinking at middle school would be really powerful. Yeah. Education needs to be more than just dumping facts into kids' brains. We need to also be teaching them how to think. And uh, and part of that, part of critical thinking is um, being able to spot false arguments and logical fallacies, not just in misinformation and um, out in the world, but in our own arguments as well. Um, I, I think that, like, I, I'm more attuned to 
using false dichotomies and and um, other different fallacies from the cranky uncle game in my own arguments now. Or well, certainly my wife likes to point out when I, when I use fallacies <laughs> in my arguments. And a good argument is a good thing, right? There's nothing wrong with a good argument when one is able to engage in the discourse you know, backed by facts, backed by solid information that helps one critically think. But you can't just say, oh, it's fake. You know, the fake news, you know, it's bad science. No, facts are facts. Yeah, I mean, a, a good argument is is certainly important, but not just in terms of having a discussion with someone, but even how we make decisions in our lives. We want to make sound decisions based on good logic, uh, and and so uh, so by learning how to argue, it, it's not just about having an argument with someone. It's really about um, thinking logically and and having sound sound arguments for our decision making, and and that can permeate all of our life. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we will carry on the conversation with John Cook. We're talking about Cranky Uncle, which is a game that he created and has illustrated as a cartoonist 10 years prior to becoming a scientist, right? This is the uh, sort of integration of all things that you love, isn't it, John? Yeah, I spent 10 years doing scientific research on how to respond to misinformation to learn more about Cranky Uncle, please visit crankyuncle.com. And you can also learn about John's work at skepticalscience.com. You can find him on Twitter at John F.O. Cook. And on Facebook, it's Cranky Uncles and Skeptical Science. We're going to take a brief pause and we'll return to the conversation with John Cook. Hang on just a sec. Before we pause, I want to remind you about the preciousness of time and the power of lifelong learning. I'm a busy gal who loves to read, and if you're anything like me, you've got a long book wish list and not enough hours in your day. And that's why I love Audible. Audible offers a huge library of book selections across most genres that includes bestsellers and new releases from fiction to nonfiction, such as memoirs, mysteries, thrillers, business, self-help, and more. You'll discover Audible Originals offering exclusive audio content from celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices. Audible membership includes one title a month delivered digitally for your listening pleasure on the go and from wherever you are. Audible members get unlimited access to an expanding collection of audiobooks, Audible Originals, and podcasts with new content being added each month. I'm in my car a lot, and right now I'm listening to River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile by Candace Millard. Let Audible help you discover new ways to laugh, be inspired, or be entertained. New members can try it free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash HH or text HH to 500-500. That's audible.com slash HH or text HH to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash HH. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Hey, 
We're back continuing the conversation with John Cook that originally aired in June of 2021. We're talking about defense against disinformation, responsible thinking and pragmatic perspectives. Let's get back to it. John, I would love for you to just spend a minute talking about the cartooning and your skill set as a cartoonist, as an artist that came prior to becoming a scientist. Yeah, so um, for a decade before I started my PhD, I was a cartoonist and put that aside and and started my PhD studying science denial and, and trying to answer the question, how do you counter misinformation? And after about a decade of research, I learned um, about using techniques to explain logical fallacies in misinformation and realized that cartoons were a perfect delivery mechanism for um, visualizing the logical flaws in misinformation. It was kind of my Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz moment, realizing that I had the answer with me all along. And so I started using uh, cartoons, drawing cartoons, to analogize or or visualize the different logical flaws in misinformation. So have you attacked the one about uh, a former presidential candidate who was involved with a Pizzagate scandal and pedophiles? Have you done that one in cartoon? I haven't looked at Pizzagate specifically. I guess that's more political misinformation, and I've been focusing more on science misinformation. Uh, But I certainly have been um, touching on conspiracy theories, uh, which, which, uh, again, conspiracy theories abound across all issues. There are climate change conspiracy theories, COVID-19 conspiracy theories, and political conspiracy theories. And when a person believes one of them, they tend to believe a, a cluster of different conspiracies. So give us a couple of examples of uh, topics that you tackle with Cranky Uncle and, and we'll, we'll go through the thought experiment with you. So a common, um, an annoyingly common argument with climate misinformation is the argument that it's cold, therefore global warming isn't real. And <laughs> so um, what, we see it every winter. As soon as it gets cold, you'll you'll inevitably hear your cranky uncle say, what happened to that global warming, eh? (laughs) And you think, yes, uncle. But the logic there, if I can take that logic and transplant it into a parallel situation, it's exactly the same as arguing at nighttime, it's dark, the sun isn't real. It's it's not looking at the big picture. It's only looking at your immediate experience, um, and uh, and so that's one of the examples I use in the Cranky Uncle game. Is I'll show a cartoon of Cranky Uncle arguing it's cold, global warming isn't real, and then switch it to a cartoon of Cranky Uncle at nighttime arguing it's dark, the sun isn't real. It's a way to use these cartoon analogies to to um, illustrate logical fallacies. And when we debunk fuzzy logic, you know, I think there's a little bit of shame, right? For the person who has believed these fallacies and then they are proven wrong, what happens? Yeah, that's, that's a really tricky one because I guess there you're talking about having conversations with your cranky uncle what the Cranky Uncle game does is it inoculates players. It, it, it 
educate them on the misleading techniques in misinformation so that they're less likely to be misled. But what the game doesn't do yet is um, help you to have difficult conversations with your cranky uncle about these kind of contentious issues. And that's that's a whole other skill set. There are a whole range of techniques, like conversational techniques that you can use to have these difficult conversations using empathy, um, having conversations with curiosity and encouraging people to, um, uh, I guess, explain how and why they believe what they believe. Uh, unfortunately, Cranky Uncle doesn't do that yet, um, but I'm hoping that down the track to be able to add a new character to the game. Um, after you've finished with Cranky Uncle, then then it unlocks a cordial cousin who will explain how to um, have have these productive but difficult conversations. I love that the cordial or the cordial, as we would say here in the U.S., cousin cordial, Cord, cordial. <laughs> and I was thinking, uh, you know, Emily, the empath, you know, <laughs> that she's got to ask powerful, open-ended questions, uh, right? Empathetic Emily, that that might, might be even better than cordial cousin. It's a working title at this point. We'll have to um, we'll have to play around with it. Yeah, options. like tell me more. I mean, I think, and that's something that we can always ask, right? We can always find a way to ask a question that, that sort of desensitizes or takes the sting out of the issue. When somebody, I know for me, in, in the case of my cranky family members, when I say, tell me more about that, I'm really curious. What does that, what, what does that mean? And then they will, you know, tell me more of their story or what they believe to be the story. And it does offer a little window. doesn't always work, but it does offer a window. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to think about it. It, it doesn't always work, but at least it gives you a fighting chance. <laughs> I've had lots of conversations with my own father, who was, I guess, a cranky dad. And he didn't... Um, uh, he wasn't convinced that climate change was real, but over time, just not through a particularly super smart argument or anything, but just having having lots of conversations over time, gradually he um, he changed his mind and and became more accepting of climate science. But on the other hand, I've also had similar conversations with my father-in-law and never got anywhere. <laughs> so there's no there's no foolproof trick. Uh, I think you just need to be present, be willing to listen to people, um, be willing to patiently talk to them over time. And, and sometimes you'll make headway, but other times you won't. And the climate deniers are a particularly um, difficult bunch, right? Because they might be very well educated or they might be well read. They might fully understand cause and effect, but they're completely blind in this area. Often they they have a lot of information at their fingertips, but the information is all there just to support the the various climate myths that they like to argue, and and all those climate myths um, have have fallacies at their root. Uh, we we published an analysis in Environmental Research Letters a couple of years ago now, 2018, and we we basically use critical thinking to deconstruct all like around 50 of the most common arguments from climate deniers and they all had logical fallacies in them. 
And when people are motivated to believe something, then they'll just grab any information that will um, support support their belief system. And that happens not just with people who aren't educated, but but also with people who are educated who have have more tools to be able to justify their motivated beliefs. So, um, yeah, we do see climate deniers can can throw a whole range of different arguments at you. And that's really what the Cranky Uncle game is about. It's about equipping you to be able to see those different fallacies in, in the range of different arguments you might encounter. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you about the the, the power and value of role-playing in this process. You know, when, when, when we're trying to really activate um, greater critical thinking, when we're trying to inoculate ourselves from the infodemic, you know, we can also play the game, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes kind of thing and um, challenge ourselves a bit. Yes. Yeah, so um, the game and, and also activities like role-playing are really an active form of inoculation. You can, you can be inoculated by receiving um, explanations of denial techniques, but you can also become inoculated by actively, as you say, putting your, putting your mind in, like putting yourself in the position of the science denier. And the, like games are one way of doing that by, by trying to become the cranky uncle. But also um, we've done a lot of role-playing exercises in classrooms um, where you have a conversation, you have a simulated conversation where one person is the cranky uncle and the other person is trying to convince them of, say, climate change. And um, just trying to play that role of cranky uncle and, and trying to marshal the different arguments encountered in the game is a way of reinforcing um, what you've just learned about those different techniques and, and more deeply inoculating yourself. And, and it's also fun. Like we've had a lot of fun doing role playing in classrooms. Uh, usually the way we do it is I'll first do a demonstration with the professor who's teaching the class where I'll be the cranky uncle and they're trying to convince me. And unfortunately I get very competitive. <laughs> so, so then I, I get crankier and crankier in the role playing conversation trying to, trying to, um, I guess, uh, bamboozle the, the professor with all the different fallacies. Um, but I think students seem to like that. It's, it's quite fun and entertaining. Well, I hope our listeners are as delighted by Cranky Uncle as I am and will will seek it out and, and use it as a tool in their own conversations and their own positive arguments, you know, because like we said earlier, that an, a good argument is actually a good thing. To learn more about the work of John Cook, please visit crankyuncle.com and skepticalscience.com. On Twitter, you can find John at John F.O. Cook. And on Facebook, those pages are Cranky Uncles and Skeptical Science. John, come back and share more about Cordial Cousin or Empathic Emily <laughs> when, whenever. When... <laughs> we'll be right back. And that's the truth. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Oh, yeah.
we're back continuing the conversation about how to defend against disinformation using responsible thinking and pragmatic perspectives. My next guest is Dr. Simon Critchley, and this conversation originally aired in November of 2021. Simon Critchley is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research and the moderator of the New York Times Stone Column. He is the author or editor of many books, including the recent book, Tragedy, the Greeks and Us, a novella, Memory Theater, a book-length essay, Notes on Suicide, and Studies of David Bowie and Association Football. The book we're talking about today is Bald, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts. Simon, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much, Lisa. Nice uh, to be here. Well, I, I, I shared with you prior to starting that I was walking through the airport the other day and I saw your book and I had made a note to self to uh, reach out to Andrea to say, go get this guy. And I was so <laughs> delighted <laughs> that this guy is here. So Yeah, I, I am, yeah. <laughs> it's very nice to be here. <laughs> and I'm amazed that you saw the book in an airport. That's, uh, that makes me very happy. Yeah, it, most definitely. And we are in dire need of some good contemporary philosophy these days to make sense out of the chaos of the mm-hmm. last several years. What is philosophy anyway, and why do we need it? Oh, I think philosophy is one way of defining it is that um, there's no agreement about the nature of philosophy and no agreement about any of the the key issues that we talk about. So philosophy is just defined by questions about what it is. And in a sense, (laughs) philosophers have been asking the question, what is philosophy for 3,000 years in different places? And uh, yeah, there are different ways of answering it. Love of wisdom is the most obvious way because that's what the word means in Greek. Philosophia is love of wisdom. So, and there's a lot packed into that actually, but that's uh, the easiest way of defining it. Love of wisdom. Yeah, love of wisdom or pondering the nature of human existence, maybe? Yeah, it can be that too. It can be, um, I mean, really it's the the question, I mean, philosophers deal with the questions that don't really, uh, that nag at us and uh, which we can't really resolve. Um, and philosophy is also, I mean, this is something I say, yeah, in the book. The first piece I did for the the stone was called um, What is a Philosopher? Rather than What is Philosophy? What is a Philosopher? And um you know, because Socrates tells different stories. So philosophy is also about storytelling. And one story he tells is about um, the, the philosopher Thales, who fell into a ditch. Right? And he fell into a ditch and a serving girl was described as laughing at him. So philosophy begins with somebody falling into a ditch and someone laughing at that person who's fallen into a ditch. So it begins in kind of comedy. It begins, so the philosopher, in an important way, is a kind of a, a fool Right, rather than being a an expert, philosophers are philosophers are not experts. That'd be one way of describing it. So, if you listen to you know the radio or read newspapers or whatever or watch TV, then it's full of experts. We're in a sense uh, lifelong amateurs who are driven by a kind of interest in things, which uh, we we spend years trying to ponder and figure out, and um, and it also means it being be a little bit like a fool and a bit like a child, actually, in terms of asking irritating, nagging questions. It's also why kids are very good 
philosophers, of natural philosophers, like they're natural drawers, you know, they'll draw <clears throat> these amazing things when they're four or five years old. And when they're maybe a tiny bit older than that, they'll start asking really deep searching questions. Uh, for example, when they realize at some point that their parents are going to die, this, this often happens with, uh, with, with parents. And then, and then the kid has to figure out, well, what does that mean? And in a sense, being a philosopher is seeing things with an almost childlike naivety and curiosity and not believing that there's some specialist or expert that's going to be able to answer it. It's, um, there are open questions and there are more open questions than one can begin to ponder in a lifetime. I have a question for you. Yes. And that is your story of the Liverpool Football Club. Oh, yeah. Because... I think that will give our listeners a glimpse into what we're talking about. Oh, right. Well, um, yes, I'm happy to do that. And actually, if you could see me on video, I'm wearing a Liverpool football club top. My family are from Liverpool. Um, everybody, my family is from Liverpool. My grandmother supported the team Liverpool football club. And on her grave, um, our gravestone, I only realized this was odd uh, about 10 years ago, I photographed my grandmother's grave to send to a friend. And they said, is that a Liverpool club crest on her grave? <laughs> said, of course it is. I mean, who do you think she was supported? And my father used to train at Anfield in Liverpool. He was a pretty good soccer player and then an injury and then lost his job and then ended up coming down south. And I, you know, from the age of, I don't know, two, three years old, I... Uh, we're supporting Liverpool, and it's, so it's the in many. And, and I have a son who's twenty-eight, uh, who is a, a passionate, a lifelong supporter of Liverpool because he had no choice. I forced him into <laughs> supporting Liverpool, and um, so that if you think about that, that that's a hundred odd years of it's actually more than a hundred years, hundred and twenty years of um, just in one Joy little family, pain. yeah, of, of supporting one team. So it's deep. And it's linked to place and, uh, you know, and tribe and identity. And um, and in the case of Liverpool, Liverpool is a city, I mean, like New York in some ways, maybe like Boston or Baltimore in other ways, where the centre of gravity is really around, say, working class culture, ordinary people. And, um, and it's about, and also it's about uh, Liverpool people are meant to be funny and be able to sing a song. That's always a, a good thing. And that's why we got the Beatles and why they were funny, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But there's lots. So it's it's very important to, you know, it's also the, the, maybe the most important thing is that the um, Liverpool is uh, a football team. It's also, it's a place which is in a country, but not of a country. So, you know, I, you could say I'm English, but, I feel like my family is from Liverpool and Liverpool is just happens to be in England, but it's not particularly English. So my relationship to England and um, the ruling class and Boris Johnson and the Etonians and the House of Windsor is at very at best kind of ambiguous, uh, if not hostile. So there are different ways of being from the country I'm from. So when we speak of philosophy, you know, yeah. in addition to 
trying to answer some of the, the big questions is, do you think it's also a way for us to come to understand ourselves in relationship to the world and others? Yes. Yeah. I think philosophy gives you, um, I mean, at its best, I mean, you know, this is uh, harvesting happiness. The, the end of philosophy for many of the ancient philosophers was happiness. What they meant by that, you know, is perhaps less than, you know, less familiar. The happiness, the word in Greek is eudaimonia, which means uh, more like uh, blessedness or um, actually the word in Greek means well-goddedness, to be well with God in some, whatever God might be, whoever, whoever God might be. So the the, the goal of philosophy is, is, is happiness, and happiness is an experience of contemplation and contemplation of uh, the nature of uh, that which is, the nature of the substances of things. So philosophy promises at its most uh, uh, extreme a kind of godly bliss. And whether we think that's um, what we mean by happiness, I think is a, a good point. One more thing I wanted to say, because this is – it's another point which takes us back to our friends, the the Greeks, and it's a really important point for me. Anyway, is that the um, Sophocles, uh, the the dramatist, uh, in one of his plays, has this line: "Call no man happy until he is dead. Call no man happy mm. until he is dead." And this seems like an odd thing to say, but what he meant by that was that the one's happiness is not something that you can ever judge. Happiness is something which someone else. Uh, judges about you. So, and for the for the ancient Greeks, that meant that happiness consisted in the stories that were told about you after you'd after you'd popped off, right? And that's what the Greeks called glory. It's a lovely idea that, that your glory would consist in the stories that you that are told about you after your after you've gone. And so, in that sense, happiness is not uh, for the Greeks and in philosophy just a personal concern about how I feel. It's about, in a sense, how you're seen, how you act in the world, how other people see you, and what kind of, you know, what kind of legacy you might leave behind. And so these are, yeah, so philosophy at its best can promise a kind of godlike happiness. And um, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I, I like the, the <laughs> word you use, well-goddedness for well eudaimonia. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but the Western world is in pursuit of hedonic happiness. Which is, is which is um, not sustainable, not even real happiness. No, I mean, in I mean, it's, you know, philosophy is. Um, I mean, you know, there's 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 the there's a kind of thing that I do. I mean, I get I get paid to think for a living. I'm an academic, and there's a whole kind of career structure and uh, all of that stuff, which is you know. I don't know how interesting that is even to me these days. But the, uh, in, if you go further back and think about what philosophers have been historically, it's much closer to um, the life of uh, a recluse or a, a monk or a contemplative or so, certainly someone who has moved away from material possessions and from you know things like wealth. It it requires a kind of asceticism, a kind of ascesis of the of, of the self, which is the kind of behavior we associate more with uh, religious people. But philosophy has an, a strong element of that too. And there are examples of, you know, like philosophers like Wittgenstein, who was from a 
uh, an assimilated uh, and very wealthy Jewish family in Vienna who, once he got his um, you know, family money, just gave it all away, just gave it all away to different people and tried to live as, uh, as poorly as possible. And there is a kind of um, a sense in which, um, you know, if you are pursuing wealth and uh, you're concerned with, you know, day-to-day pleasures, I mean, that can certainly fill up one's time, whether it actually is fulfilling in terms of an overall existence, I think is a, you know, is, is a moot point. And one thing that the, I hope that the pandemic has done over the past year is it's allow, allowed people to raise certain fundamental questions about uh, what they think is of value in their lives and to, um, and to reassess that. So it's been a moment where we've been in an enforced period of contemplation and reflection and anxiety and fear too, but also reflection. So it's been a philosophical moment and I hope, I hope that sticks around for a bit longer. Me too. Let's take a break mm-hmm. and then we'll come back and continue the conversation with Simon Critchley. To learn more about his work, please visit simoncritchley.org. On Twitter, you can find him at Critchley Update and on Facebook, Simon Critchley's Pages of Dead Philosophers. We're going to grab a quick break and we'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're back continuing the conversation with Simon Critchley that originally aired in November of 2021. We're talking about disinformation defense, how responsible thinking and pragmatic perspectives can help. Simon, before we broke, you spoke about the importance and value of our year of contemplation, you know, imposed by the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. and we began to talk about its value and in your hopes that this would continue. And I can say for myself and those around me that I too had a, a year of contemplative thinking and being and see how important being in that state is to not just happiness, but, but creating a life of meaning. And mm-hmm. I wanted to move forward, you know, piggybacking on that to talk a little bit about what's ailing our society and what's going right in our world right now. Mm-hmm. Sort of okay. both sides of the coin. I think that certainly for, for me, and when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I had a, a misspent youth would be one way of putting it. And I remember feeling an absolutely chronic anxiety. I didn't really have the word anxiety to describe it. 
And somehow around that time, I uh, also began to read some philosophical work. I read an essay, I remember, by Martin Heidegger, who's a philosopher that I've uh, done work on over the years. And he had this sentence where he said, anxiety reveals the nothing. Anxiety reveals the nothing. And without being able to say what that meant, I understood exactly what it meant. Right? The, my, the anxiety that I was feeling, the sense of uh, kind of vertigo, in a sense, yeah, vertigo, dizziness, was, um, was about nothing in particular. That there was no particular thing in the world I was scared of, um, but the whole thing had induced a kind of dread in me. And it's, um, I think the pandemic has, um, has brought that back into much sharper focus that people in a sense are scared of a virus. Okay. And that's, um, and that's something to be scared of. But I think more in, in a deeper level, what, what it's induced in a lot of people has been, uh, a general anxiety about their whole, their whole being in the world. Uh, who they are and uh, and what matters to them, and that stepping back from one's entanglement in, you know, work and travel and running around and exhausting ourselves with a lot of activities which perhaps seemed important, and then suddenly they were ripped away last year, and we were left kind of stranded with ourselves or with our with our families for company, trying to figure things out, and I think that's a really important moment it's not just uh it's not that it's um an experience of you know depression or sadness or melancholy that needs to be uh medicated or uh you know uh solved as it were it should be used and, and worked with so i guess what i think at my you know deepest level is that that anxiety that we feel that 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 dread that we feel about and we felt over the last year is what actually makes possible our our freedom, uh, our, our freedom as 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 human beings, and what we can what we can accord value to, and what we can really think is important, and what we can commit ourselves to. I think a lot of us have been forced to reassess that, and I think it's obviously there's a there are a whole series of political things connected with this that I don't think I even want to get into. But you know, we know what we've been through over the last year. It's been <laughs> it's been strange. Show. Yeah, it's been strange, strange and rough. But the but the importance of just stepping back and and reassessing and thinking things through, rather than being endlessly kind of swept away by the busyness of life, I think is um, that that's philosophical activity. So I think that although people didn't choose it, they've 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 become philosophers over the last year. What's that going to What's that going to lead to? Well. Um, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to a real sense of the importance of, you know, deep, deep bonds and deep relationships. I think certainly in my case, and, you know, uh, I think, I don't think I'm alone in this, that the, I've, uh, I've not seen a lot of people over the year, but I've seen some people over the year and those people I've seen of those, those, uh, friendships have deepened and, um, become more more profound over the year and more, more trusting. And, um, and we've seen each other in these kind of very exposed, vulnerable states. And that's, um, that's, that, that's very important because we're all, we're all, you know, weak, you know, fragile 
creatures uh, and we can be wiped away with a virus. Human life is, is, is fragile, is vulnerable, and we're dependent on others. Yeah. But that's our strength. That's, that's what makes human life uh, worth living, dependence, vulnerability, weakness. It's not about um, individuality and strength and powering through. It's, you know, it's about accepting that you're a, a weak, dependent, reasonable, most of the time animal who's scared a lot of the time. And, um, and that, I think that puts us in some very good company historically, actually. I think it's the way human beings have felt a lot of the time um, because there's been a lot of plague a lot of the time in, in history. So I think we, uh, we were living in a kind of um, counterfeit eternity, a counterfeit immortality um, a lot of the time uh, prior to the, the pandemic. And the pandemic has maybe woken us up. And also to enjoy things like um, I mean, right now I'm li- I'm in I'm in New York and I live in Brooklyn and I'm I'm hearing birds singing and I remember you know I'd lived I've lived in this apartment for uh, nearly ten years and it was only really last year that I really began to listen to bird song and migratory birds going up the East Coast and and they're they're passing through again and I'm listening to them and there's something to be said for that. You know, just taking the time to appreciate a bird singing, you know, it's it's singing, it's singing its, uh, its voice out early in the evening. And it's to focus on those small pleasures and take the time uh, that they require and not to not to rush all the time. Uh, what, what I hear you saying is that as life became maybe perhaps more small or insulated during the pandemic, that it also became bigger and larger and mm-hmm. our, and our, we began to maybe understand our place in it a bit more. I think so. I mean, I think it did. I think it, it's, um, I think our scales shrunk to, you know, um, there were people who were living alone or people who were living in small family groups or whatever, but at the same time, the sense of the, the world, uh, got bigger because, Everybody was in the same mess in different ways, doing different things, but in the same mess. And I think it also had, um, I, I think it did also have, you know, political consequences in the sense in which um, we ended up with, um, we ended up with uh, Joe Biden as president. And what really, what Joe Biden is really good at is grieving. He's a, he's yeah. a, you know, a griever in chief. I mean, whatever one thinks of Biden, and I, you know, I think a lot of things about Biden, a lot of good things about Biden, but he is empathetic. He appreciates people's suffering. And I think that's something that we've all gone through in the last, the last year. We, we're codependent on each other. We maybe, you know, if we're lucky, we've got through, we've got, I've, I've had, I've had a vaccination. I'm, you know, I have not been sick, um, but I'm also incredibly sensitive and touched by, you know, the suffering that's still going on. And I have, say, students in Brazil, some really good students in Brazil who've been stuck there for uh, since March last year. And it's um, it's not a great situation in Brazil. And no. um, and so and so you feel I think it's so 
so I think there's a uh, the solitude and the the withdrawal uh, have led to an increase in empathy, compassion, and and a sense of you know we need to do some we need to do decent things where possible because it is later than we think. Yes, it's later than we think. Thank you for saying that. You know, no, that's kind of powerful. And you know, maybe the chief humanist in charge. <laughs> yes. You know? You're right. It's exactly what we needed. I mean, what was intolerable over the last year was just the the mismanagement of the situation here, and the just the ineptitude of uh, the response. There are certain there, there are certain times when uh, government and institutions serve very good purposes, right? The, you know, for something like a, a virus, we need. We need scientific institutions to do the research. To uh, we need pharmaceutical country co- companies to make the, the vaccine. We need distribution networks. We need organisation, and all of that should hopefully go on, you know, behind our behind our backs. It should just be the way in which a society functions. And it felt in the United States last year uh, that that had all every every moment seemed to be, you know. Uh, a crisis, a dis, you know, some some um, outrage on social media and whatever, and it's just exhausting. And I think the other thing, which is, um, I think, is um, whether this is interesting or not, is the the feeling of fatigue, the feeling of, uh, of of tiredness that people have. And I I teach students and um, on Zoom, which is not great. And I really see their their fatigue, their exhaustion, and their. I mean, for someone like me as a teacher, it, Zoom is okay. You can kind of you know get away with it, but they're really losing out on the whole experience of being a student, being in a room with people, being then you know having chats and conversations with new people, and being excited by that, and then new friendships forming and intrigues and all those wonderful things that make human life uh, interesting. And there they are on their, you know, on the, uh, the little boxes, little stamps on their, uh, on, on, on a zoom screen and um, they're strangers to each other and, um, and I'm strangers to them. And we're kind of maintaining the illusion. This is, uh, this is fine, but it's really not. You need so in a sense that we've been so two things have happened in the last year. On the one hand, um, we've been we've realised the extraordinary power of you know the digital age and uh, the internet and blah blah blah, uh, and uh, and that's made amazing things possible. Um, on the other hand, we're now really, really, very clearly aware of the limitations of that and the huge importance there is on actually being in a room or in a space with another human being and being able to read their, read their cues, all that nonverbal stuff, which is really hard to do when you're uh, pulled out on your own and, um, you know, and trying to look at a computer screen. And so, oh, and the other last thing I want to say about this, which I think is the, the thing that I guess worries me most is that I did one of the things that I wrote about um, in previous years, and then I did some more work on this um, last year, was on suicide. It's not a pleasant topic, but it's an important topic. And um, and, um, when you look at the literature on suicide, like the, you know, the proper, you know, 
scientific literature on suicide, um, it is clear that the um, suicide rates always increase in the spring. It's when things are getting better that people finally give up and lose heart. So in a sense, what we have to focus on right now is that the pandemic is at least for us in a you know the privileged you know united states is beginning 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 to to pass but the hangover of that uh the hangover of that in terms of the effects of the last year on how we feel about everything uh are going to be with us for a long time and that should really be um, our focus and um a lot of people are and so as things get better, this is this is this is what I'm trying to say. As things get better, objectively in relationship to say mortality rates and virus numbers, things are going to get maybe worse when it comes to uh, mental health problems and issues and things like that. And we have to be very attentive to that in the next the next months and years. I think, particularly on uh, particularly on the young. I agree. And I want to urge our listeners to pick up a copy of Bald, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts, and also have a look at the last essay, number 35, Our Fear, Our Trembling, Our Strength, by my guest today, Simon Critchley. Thanks, Simon. This has been such a great conversation, and I really uh, love your work and appreciate the angle from which you come. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. It's been, it's been great fun. Yeah, and, um, really good uh, fun. Come back anytime. Hang out with me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Whenever you want. All right. I'm here. We'll, we'll do it. To learn right. more, please visit simoncritchley.org on Twitter at Critchley Update and on Facebook, Simon Critchley's Page of Dead Philosophers. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, John Cook and Simon Critchley, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU-RadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>